train people well enough so they can leave and treat them well enough so they don't want to. Richard Branson. Hey friends, family. Hey Josh. Hey Joni. Hey Dave. Thank you guys for all tuning in. Welcome back to the Intentional Living Leadership Podcast with me, Cal Walters. I'm someone who is passionate about the study of life and the study of leadership. I believe that leadership matters and I believe that we can all get better at both. The more we think about life, the more we think about how we lead, we can get better. Today, I am at the end of a series on servant leadership. This has been a really fun series for me. If this is your first time tuning in, I introduced this series back on episode 16, and I might recommend that you go ahead and pause this episode if you're first tuning in. Go listen to episode 16 where I introduce it, and you can listen to episode 17 and 18 where I cover the first six principles of servant leadership. Now, I'm jumping into the next three principles of servant leadership. Real quick, I just got back from an awesome trip to Gettysburg with some people in my organization. It was awesome. We got to walk around the battlefield. We got to really dissect some of the leadership lessons as I was at Gettysburg. It just reminded me how awesome it is to every now and again, just change your environment, go somewhere, take a trip, go for a walk. It's amazing what it does, I think, for the brain. It allows us to see things in a way that we've never seen before. I think that's the beauty of travel. And that's what that did for me. Going to Gettysburg, walking those grounds, having a chance just to reflect was really refreshing for me. So I just want to encourage you, if you're someone who maybe needs a change of perspective, maybe tap into some of that creativity you have or tap into that innovation, maybe it's time to change your environment. I just want to mention that as I jump into this topic today because it really impacted me and it's fresh on my brain. So let's jump right into these three principles today. I've got a lot to cover. I want to value your time. I'm going to be covering three three principles, the last three principles, and that is that number one, servant leaders invest in the personal growth of individuals. Number two, servant leaders build and cultivate a culture of trust. And then number three, servant leaders inspire. So let's start with principle number one for today. Servant leaders invest in the personal growth of their individuals, the people on their team. They're investing On episode 17, one of the principles I talked about was empowerment and how servant leaders empower their team, how they push authority down, how they give their team the what and the why. In military speak, that would be the mission and the commander's intent, but they don't tell their team members how. This makes for team members and subordinates that are more excited, more inspired, more fulfilled. And it also allows the leader to focus on those things that only the leader can do. Now, the reason I bring up empowerment right now is one of the things that I've personally struggled with, and I think I may have mentioned this, is empowerment. Because empowerment inevitably means a loss of control. The great thing, though, if you're like me and you struggle with that, and I'm just being honest, is that by developing your people, by investing in their personal growth, it makes empowerment a little bit less fearful because you're giving them tasks, you're pushing authority down, you're trusting in them, but you're also simultaneously growing them. You're helping them become the type of person and the type of individual that you want them to be. So that's the beauty. These things all work hand in hand. You're empowering, but you're also helping them grow. You know, as I was looking through this, I came across this funny exchange between a CFO and a CEO. The CFO looks over at the CEO a bit worried and he says to the CEO, he says, hey, what happens if we invest and we pay all this money to develop our people and then they leave us? And the CEO kind of looks back at the CFO with a smile on his face and he says, 
yeah, but what happens if we don't and they stay? And I think that highlights kind of the tension that maybe a lot of leaders feel as well. If I'm going to invest all this money and time and energy and someone's going to leave the team, but the reality, and I think that CEO hits it right on the head, is that these people are in your organization as leaders. We can't not develop them. If we don't develop them, then they're going to not ever be the type of people that we want them to be. And they're never going to fully actualize their potential. Here's the main point I think that I want you to take away from this part about develop. The average leader develops followers, but the true great leader, they build other leaders. And by doing this, what they do, kind of reflecting back on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs theory that I talked about before, they help people self-actualize. After our basic needs are met, like food, water, shelter, one of our biggest needs is to truly grow, to improve, to experience that beautiful process of getting closer and closer to our potential, to that person that God created us to be. And an organization whose people are not growing, they're not excited. They're not excited to be there, not fulfilled. But an organization whose people are growing, whose people are getting better, they are more excited and they are more fulfilled. Let me ask you, who were some of the best coaches that you've ever had? Some of the best teachers you've ever had? I bet if you're like me, they were people who had this blend of love and care, but they also pushed you. They pushed you to be better than maybe you even wanted to be in that moment. They pushed you because they believed in you. There might be a lot of people out there that think of servant leaders as people who are weak. You know, they're just too nice to their people. They let their people run all over them. I think that's a false view of servant leadership. Servant leaders are actually people who love their people, who genuinely care about their people. And because of their love and genuine care for their people, they push their people because they want them to be better. And they know that those people are going to be happiest when they're, when they're really at their best. So how do we do this? How do we invest in our team? Let's get real practical here. I want to go through a number of steps that you can do to develop a development plan and a plan of investment on your team. Now, here's where it starts. I think like most things in life, the first step in developing your team is to first get your mindset right as a leader. You have to accept a few fundamental truths before you can really, I think, develop an effective plan. Truth number one is that you as a leader need to realize that this is your responsibility to grow people. Sure, there may be people on your team that are going to grow on their own, but you can't rely on that. Obviously, you want to hire good people who have that you know, self-initiative and they're proactive in their own personal growth, but you as the leader have to make this a priority. In fact, there's little that I think is more important for a leader than investing in your people. Okay, so that's number one. And then number two, you have to accept the truth that this is not just going to happen automatically. You've got to be intentional about making this happen. This has to become an ongoing initiative that takes up a lot of space on your calendar. I mean, think about all the time that companies spend trying to find the right people. But imagine if we as leaders took that much time, if not more, and tried to build people from within our organization. Oftentimes it seems, and when you really read the literature, that people tend to build more leaders than they actually find. So I encourage you to take that mindset of one, it's my responsibility as a leader, and two, I'm going to have to be intentional about doing this. It's not just going to automatically happen. I've got to make this a priority, and I've got to calendar it, and I've got to be very deliberate about developing my people. Okay, so once you've accepted that right mindset, that it's my responsibility, here's some very practical ways to make it happen. Number one, make a list of about four to five key areas of development for your team. 
It shouldn't be hard. You know, four to five buckets of things that if you're thinking about what is the ideal person in this area, maybe you lead a software team who have people who are selling, what are some what are four or five categories that you really want to develop? What skills do you want them to develop? Let me give you an example from a recent experience I had as a leader. So I helped supervise 10 different military prosecutors. And as a prosecutor, I can easily come up with four to five areas that I need to develop in my prosecutors for them to be effective. I mean, one area was oral advocacy. If you're going to get up in the courtroom and you're going to stand in front of a jury and you're going to try to persuade them or you're going to stand in front of a judge and try to contest the point of law, you have to have the science and the art of oral advocacy. So that's something I would work on with my prosecutors. Number two, I knew that written advocacy was crucial. A lot of the pretrial issues, those issues of law are litigated in written motion. So I knew I had to develop the people on my team, their writing, their persuasiveness, their knowledge of the law, all of that had to be developed in written advocacy. Number three, I knew that my prosecutors had to be familiar with the rules of evidence. This governs the ability to get evidence into trial. And so not only did they have to be familiar with the rules of evidence, but they had to be able to stand up in front of a judge and articulate those rules of evidence. So that's something we worked on. We also worked on discovery. Discovery is a prosecutor's obligation to hand over evidence to the defense counsel. So we worked on that, helped them learn the rules of discovery so that that's something that was fundamental to their prosecuting of a case. We also would go over questioning of witnesses how to ask your witnesses the right questions, how to do an effective cross-examination. If you look on TV, it may look really easy to do a cross-examination, but it is not easy to get up there and do an effective cross-examination. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of development. So that's just real quick, five very easy to spot buckets of development that I had for my prosecutors. These are very technical skills. So you can do that with your team. Whatever those five buckets are, make a list of them. You could probably come up with 10, but at least get four to five key areas that you want to develop. Another bucket that you need to have, regardless of what organization you're in, regardless of what the, you know, the technical thing that you do is leadership. So make sure that you are being very deliberate about building leadership separate from these other technical tasks. You have to develop your people because you're developing leaders. You're not just developing followers. So you have to teach them the skill of leadership. If there's a book that you've really been impacted by on leadership, buy them copies, make them read it. I had a great leader who would do book reviews and book clubs. We would all get together and talk about leadership books. If there's a podcast, a video, thought leaders that really impact you, help you grow, recommend those to your team. It's ultimately about creating a culture of growth. What the leader emphasizes and talks about ultimately becomes the culture. So as you got those four to five buckets of technical things, also make a bucket of leadership. Now, once you've made a list of those different buckets, now it's time to honestly assess where are your team members with those buckets? Where is this guy at with oral advocacy? How is he with his written advocacy? How is he with getting up and talking about the rules of evidence? So I do kind of my own assessment of what are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And then I meet with them individually. And I share with them, hey, this is where I think you're at. Where do you think you're at? And I give them an opportunity to have some buy-in. And I tell them, hey, I want to make you better. I love you. I care about you. I want you to be better. People love it. Really, at the end of the day, they may not love it at first, but at the end of the day, they're going to love it when they feel like they have a leader who genuinely cares, who wants to make them better. So meet with them, get them to go through with you where they think they're strong, where you think they're strong, where they think they're weak, where you think they're weak and come to an agreement. It's like, hey, this is how we're going to do this. This is how we're going to make you better. Then the next step 
is to schedule a system of instruction, feedback, and assessment. So it needs to be a very deliberate time when they get instruction on these topics. It can be from you. It can be from a subordinate leader. It can be from people that you bring in. They need to have an opportunity to then go do these things and get feedback. And then they need to have an opportunity to get an assessment from you of how they're doing. Now, this is a very intentional piece. If we don't put this on the calendar, it's not going to happen. So schedule a time when you will develop your team in these areas. Make it consistent. And then create a schedule of honest feedback and assessment. When I manage prosecutors, every Tuesday morning, we would have formal training for all of our prosecutors. And this was the priority. No matter what they had going on, we made it a priority. You need to be there Tuesday morning every week when we do training on these topics. And there's obviously always reasons not to do it. But if you as the leader make this a priority, it's going to happen. Time and resources are ultimately what indicate your priorities. So plan these events so that you have the time and space for your people to grow. The next step is making sure that you resource them properly. There are times when you'll bring someone else in to train people. Then there are times where you're going to go to a conference or go to a retreat. But the real progress is made in that day-to-day leader development of your own team. Development is not something you do when you can find time. It's one of the most important jobs that you're going to have as a leader. And then finally, the final step is making sure that you recognize, recognize, recognize. What's rewarded is repeated. So take the time as your people are getting better, as you're doing those assessments. Recognize them. Recognize them publicly. Let them know that they're doing well so that you can reward them and you continue to get them to grow. So let's do a quick review. One, get the mindset right. Growth and development doesn't just happen. It's the leader's responsibility. Next, start by thinking about four to five key overarching areas that you want your team members to develop in. Then make sure leadership and personal development are part of that list. Next, do an honest and individual assessment of each team member in those areas. Bring them into the process and give them honest feedback and inspiration so they can grow. Then the next step, development opportunities have assessments, give them periodic feedback, make sure it's on the calendar. If it's not on the calendar, it's not going to happen. Make sure you resource it. And then most importantly, at the end of all this, make sure you recognize them as they make progress. So that's principle number one. Make sure as you empower your people that you are developing your people. Principle number two for today, servant leaders build a culture of trust. Servant leaders build a culture of trust. You know, a lot of leaders, and I think I'm in the same boat, I wish I could control people. If I'm just honest, I wish I could control people. I wish I could make people do things that they don't want to do. I wish I could make people think things that they don't want to think. But at the end of the day, we can't control people. We really can't. But what we can do is we can create a culture where the things that we value and the things that we want to emphasize are rewarded, where those types of things thrive. And a key fundamental thing for having an effective organization, and I'm going to go into depth on this, is trust. So a leader has to create a culture of trust. Any human experience that we, you and I have ever had that was meaningful had a foundation of trust. If you're in a marriage, you have to have that foundation of trust. If you're in a, in a church, you have to have that foundation of trust. If you're on a team, a sports team, you have to have that foundation of trust. This might seem obvious, but the current literature seems to suggest that a lot of teams, a lot of organizations lack true trust. Simon Sinek gave a viral TED Talk. It's been viewed over about, I think, 12 million times. And he talked about how leaders, great leaders, make people feel safe. He draws this circle and he discusses how in the best organizations, the danger comes from the outside. And so inside this circle 
is this circle of safety. Those are really the best organizations. And he, and he illustrates this point by using several military examples and how people in the military trust each other because the danger is coming from the outside. So they have this culture of trust. And I can tell you as someone who has served in the military for the past 11 years, I can attest to the beauty of being part of a team that trust one another. It can be a beautiful thing. I remember being in Iraq, having that feeling that I would give everything in me. I'd give my blood, my sweat, my tears, whatever is necessary to try to help protect the guys on my left and to my right more than anything. As a leader in combat, my goal was to make sure that all 40 or so of my guys came home. And that's just what happens when you're in that reality, when the danger is from the outside. You're not able to live in denial. If something's messed up inside the organization, you're going to fix it. And you have to create an environment as the leader where people can bring you issues so that you can fix it because everyone's life is on the line. There's danger coming from the outside. Now, the question is, if you're not in that type of reality where you're having to truly bind together as a team to survive, how do you create that culture of trust in an organization? I think one of the best explanations that I have heard on building trust comes from a book. It's called The Advantages by Patrick Licioni. Lencioni is an expert management consultant. He's a best-selling author. And his basic thesis in this book, The Advantage, I encourage you to read it. It's very simple, but it really lays out, I think, some of these core fundamentals to building an organization. His thesis is that organizational health is the most important discipline in business and that companies that focus on being healthy ultimately have a competitive advantage. He talks about how companies typically spend a whole lot more time and energy on being smart instead of healthy. Smart organizations, to kind of help you understand if you haven't read the book, smart organizations are good at strategy, marketing, finance, technology. And these are all obviously important parts of having a successful organization. But after decades of working with teams and working with executives and companies, Lencioni thinks that organizational health is even more important than having a company that's smart. Healthy organizations have minimal politics, minimal confusion, high morale, high productivity, and low turnover. And he says that leaders often don't focus on health because it's not sexy, it's not sophisticated. A lot of leaders of, especially in organizations and business, they wanna focus on finance, focus on technology, focus on marketing. Those are the sexy and sophisticated parts of an organization. Those are the things you can quantify, but there's real impact and being a leader who focuses on the health of your organization. What he's found is that organizations that focus on health ultimately also get smarter in the process. And so one of the key elements to creating a healthy organization, and the reason that I wanted to bring this up in this section about building a culture of trust, foundational to building a healthy organization, Lencioni believes, is building what he calls not just trust, but vulnerability based trust, which is interesting. So he says it's vulnerability-based trust that you really need to build as an organization to be successful. And here are some things that you might hear in an organization where they're team members and they have this vulnerability-based trust. They'd be able to be like, hey, Joe, man, I really screwed that up. I'm so sorry, man. Or hey, hey, Susie, 
I really need your help on this. I'm in over my head. I could really use your help and assistance on this. Or, hey, Jim, you know what? Your idea on that thing that we talked about the other day is way better than mine, and I would really like to adopt that. I want to make sure your idea gets the type of recognition that it needs. Or, hey, Megan, you know, I really wish I could learn to do that thing as well as you do it. Could you help me learn how to do that? Or maybe it's just as simple as saying, I'm sorry. Hey, I messed up. But those types of things, if you've ever been in an organization, you probably don't hear that a lot unless you are truly in an organization where the leader has cultivated this sense of trust. When you don't have a trusting organization, a lot of times people are trying to hide information. They're trying to hide their weaknesses. They're trying to hide their screw-ups. But as a leader, we know that's not productive. If there's things that have been messed up, I need to know about it. Or if there's things that I'm doing wrong as the leader, I need you to tell me about this. So ultimately, when we get to a place of vulnerability-based trust, we get people to abandon their pride, abandon their fear, abandon their ego for ultimately the collective good of the organization. And I'm not talking about some super touchy-feely type holding hands, singing songs. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about really the practical goal of maximizing the performance of a group. All that time that's wasted so much of tiptoeing around certain issues or you know, trying to be delicate. The great thing about a vulnerability-based trusting organization where the leaders cultivated that is that people can cut through that stuff and they can be more effective and efficient. So how do you do this? Well, I want to go through real quick kind of a three or four step process that Lean Sioni does to build this in organizations. When he meets with companies, this is what he does. Number one, first and foremost, what he does is he gets the people together, the people on the leadership team, and he has them kind of go through four or five things about their personal history. Number one, they, they tell where they're born. Number two, they tell how many siblings they have. Number three, they tell them this is where I fall in the order of children. And then also the final part is what is the most interesting or difficult challenge that you had as a kid growing up? It takes 15 to 20 minutes. He said it's amazing to watch these people who maybe haven't really been around each other for that long start to gain this profound new sense of respect and admiration for people as they realize some of the things they went through growing up and some of the hardships they had to go through. In fact, he shares this really cool story about this CFO who was really tight with the budget. And people were frustrated by it. There was this general consensus that this guy just didn't trust anyone. But when he started going through his history of growing up in Chicago in the 1950s, his family was poor. I mean, really poor. They didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't have electricity most of the time. And he says as people heard this for the first time about how he grew up, and he explained that that's really one of the reasons that he's tight with money is he never wants to be poor again. You could just sense the subtle magnitude of people hearing that for the first time and being able to kind of empathize with this person on a new level. So that's one way is people first go through their kind of personal history and tell a little bit about how they grew up. Number two, what he does is he does personality tests, behavior-based testing. He used the Myers-Briggs test. Maybe you've done the Myers-Briggs test before. I've done it before. Maybe you, there's other tests out there like the Enneagram, but he does these tests to help people understand themselves and then also help other people understand the people on their team. The great thing about this is when you do these types of tests, there's no good or bad types of people. We just are the way we are. Everything that's uncovered is neutral. And so for me, I'm an ENFP. I'm an ENFP. So for E, that stands for extroversion. That's how I manage my energy. The opposite are people that are introverted. Extroverts tend to warm up to people more quickly. They tend to feel more comfortable expressing themselves while introverts take a little bit longer. So if you have people on your teams that are extroverts, well, they may behave completely different than your introverts, 
but neither one of them is right. But if you don't understand that's what this person is like, then you may not be able to create that culture of trust. And I'll get into that in just a minute. I am a in for intuition, which is how I process information. And the opposite of this is someone who's sensing and sensors are more interested in facts and details and people who are intuitives are more interested in ideas. I'm also an F An F means a feeler instead of a thinker. And that kind of sounds like something my mom would have said to me when I was a kid. Oh, Cal, you're more of a feeler than a thinker. Okay, thanks, mom. Appreciate it. Um, but anyway, this describes my orientation to personal values. So thinkers tend to value logic, competence, and objectivity, while feelers value empathy, cooperation, and compassion. Thinkers believe that every person should basically take care of themselves, while feelers believe that everyone has this responsibility to take care of those around them. So if you have people that are thinkers, it doesn't mean they're mean. It just means, hey, I think that everyone should kind of take care of themselves. If you have feelers, well, they kind of feel this responsibility to take care of the people around them. So you just kind of understand the difference in your people. Also, I'm a P. That stands for perceiving instead of judging. And this describes how someone manages their life. Perceivers tend to follow the whims of the moment, make the rules up as they go, have the freedom to be flexible. They like to brainstorm ideas. They like to do things as the inspiration strikes them. They like to go with the flow. While judges, on the other hand, they like to create a plan. They like to stick to it. They like to see a task through to the completion. They like to adhere to a schedule. So if you have a judger and you're giving them different tasks and you're not being consistent, it's probably going to drive them nuts. And you need to know that about your people. And so that's one of the great things that Lean Shioni does with these personality tests is he allows people to get to know each other. He allows leaders to get to know their subordinates. He allows peers to get to know each other. He shares this great stories about this one person who was frustrated with this team member. He felt like he was always turning things in at the last minute. And that person felt like he was being disrespected. And then this person learned that this person had a struggle with perfectionism and that they really never felt like they could turn things in because he always wanted to make them perfect. And then when they understood that that's just a fundamental part of their personality, they felt less hurt by it and they felt like they were not being disrespected. It was just a part of that person's personality. So it's important for us to do this. And the great thing, when we understand how everyone's motivated differently and behaves differently, it helps us fight against our own tendency to attribute frustrating behaviors by others to their intentions while attributing our own negative behaviors to environmental factors. This is called the fundamental attribution error. For example, let's say a colleague of yours or someone on your team shows up late to a meeting. Our human tendency using the fundamental attribution error is to think negatively of that person and be suspicious. We might think, oh man, that person failed to plan, they're late, they don't care about this meeting. So that's what we might think about other people but if I'm late, I'm probably going to blame that on environmental factors. So I had other work I had to do, or there was a lot of traffic, or I had to drop my kid off at school. And so this type of behavior is ultimately just assuming the worst in people and giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, but it ultimately breaks down trust. And so when we understand that people are simply wired differently than us, it helps us fill in this gap. There's always going to be a gap between their, our expectations of people and their performance. And then the question is, what do we put in that gap? Do we put trust? Do we put suspicion? And the more we get to know each other, the more we can fight against this fundamental attribution error. And then the third thing that he talks about is how it's important for the team to practice and then reinforce vulnerability. And that has to be led by the leader. And I'm talking about vulnerability for vulnerability's sake. I'm not suggesting there be no boundaries, but he's suggesting that leaders practice being open and honest to allow the team members 
to then be open and honest. If the leader shuts down any type of openness in a meeting, then people are just going to shut down. If the leader never listens to people, then people are going to stop having things to say. And so what this does is it ultimately allows the leader to have a better reality of things on the ground. And also it's going to save the whole entire team time. So practicing transparency led by the leader is going to make all the difference. So a real quick review of this principle. Number one, trust is imperative to having a team that's cohesive. When people feel safe, they can be honest when things go well, and they can be honest when things don't go well. They can ask for help when they need help. They can share information freely. And the leader has to lead by being open and honest. And the team members and the leader fight that fundamental attribution error by understanding each other's personality. So I encourage you to, to use these tools that are out there on your team to get to know your team, to cultivate a culture of trust, to lead by being a leader who's willing to be vulnerable. And then the last principle for this day and then also for this series is that servant leaders inspire. Servant leaders inspire. And inspiration is just an awesome thing if you've ever felt that. Inspiration, the, the word inspire comes from the Latin word that means to inflame or to blow into, which means that inspiring someone can involve fanning a flame that already exists. It's a flame that's already inside that person, or it can be igniting a flame inside of someone that doesn't exist. Now, I think the difference, the key difference between motivation and inspiration is that motivation is kind of short-term. It's a short-term feeling, while inspiration can be more enduring. Motivation is that thing that gets you out of bed one day to go work out one time. Inspiration gets you out of bed every single day to go out and be physically fed. Now, when I think personally about leaders that have really inspired me, the first thing that I think of are leaders who lead themselves well. These are leaders whose their actions are in line with their values. For example, if a leader says they value fitness and then they model that, that inspires me. If a leader says they care about people and then they model that by treating people with respect, that also inspires me. If they say they care about work-life balance and then they model that by pushing others to have balance and then also having balance themselves, that inspires me. These types of leaders know who they are and they live that out in their daily lives. Now, one of the largest and most in-depth studies of inspirational leadership was conducted by Bain and Company. Many of us may think that the only way to be an inspiring leader is to have this ability to give this inspiring speech, to be that Winston Churchill figure that gives the rallying cry for Britain when everyone else thinks that hope is lost and continue to fight during World War II. Or maybe you think of Martin Luther King who gives that inspiring speech to keep a generation fighting against injustice. But the great thing is Bain and Company found there's a lot of different types of leadership attributes that someone has. And it doesn't mean you have to be someone who's this inspiring leader, a charismatic person that gets in front of the organization and fires them up. In fact, the study found that there are 33 characteristics, as they study this over three years, that were statistically significant for inspiring people. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to cover all 33 characteristics, but I do want to encourage you to check out the study. You can just Google it. But they found that inspiring leaders had anywhere from one to four of these characteristics. So you don't even have to have all 33 of these characteristics. If you just have one of these characteristics, it can make you a more inspiring leader. If you have four of these characteristics, it makes you an extremely inspiring leader. They also found that these characteristics can be developed. So it's not like you're born with it or you're not. You can develop these characteristics. A couple things when you read these, I think you'll see, and this really stood out to me. One is that many of these characteristics are principles that we discussed 
as being a servant leader. So if you just apply the principles that we talked about on the last three episodes of this podcast, I guarantee you're going to be a more inspiring leader. Things like humility, servanthood, empathy, listening, developing other people. And also, one another thing stood out to me, the most significant characteristic. Now, I know that I kind of mentioned that there were 33, but the most significant characteristic is a characteristic called centeredness. Centeredness is described as the state of greater mindfulness achieved by engaging all parts of the mind to be fully present. And as I've read about centeredness, to me, it sounds a lot like principled which is the ability to not to respond emotionally to a situation, but to choose your reaction based on information and based on your values. And really, that's what we do on this podcast. We focus on being principled leaders, being people who have thought about in advance how we want to lead. So I encourage you, if you want to inspire other people, develop these characteristics as a leader. Take the time to learn and know your values and your principles. Choose to lead yourself and be a model for others. Be a leader that is centered. We're all attracted to leaders that have this kind of inner confidence. It's not cockiness, but it's a confidence. It's a confidence that comes from spending time in the trenches of your heart and your mind preparing for that tremendous responsibility of leadership. So guys, that is the last principle of servant leadership. Wow, this has been quite a journey for me to take a deep dive into servant leadership, to explore these principles that make up a servant leader, and to think about how I can live these out in my leadership. If you've enjoyed this series as much as I have, please share this with someone else. Also, I sincerely appreciate everyone that has subscribed to this podcast wherever you consume it. Those that have taken the time to rate this podcast on iTunes, I think we have 51 ratings as of the last time I saw taking the time to write a short review. I think we've had anywhere from 15 to 16 written reviews. So each one of those helps make us more reachable, I believe, from uh, people that are looking for podcasts like this. Also, thank you to those that have reached out to me, told me about the ways in which you're leading as servants. I really appreciate Brian, you reaching out to me, telling me all about how you're leading your team in this way. It's, It's been awesome to do that. Also, Ryan, I loved what you said about servant leadership. One thing that Simon Sinek said that I'm going to leave you with that really resonated with me is that you and I should all strive to be the leader that we wish we had. And imagine a world where we did this. Imagine a world where we put these principles into practice on a daily basis, where leaders empowered people, where they gave recognition, where they took the blame, where they cared about the whole person, where they were generous to their team, where they listened well where they invested in the growth of their team, where they built a culture of trust and where they inspired their team. The millions of people that go to work each day would be so much more engaged, so much more energized and so much more fulfilled. The 90,000 or more hours of people's lives that are spent at work would be more meaningful. So let's go and do this today. No matter who you lead, whether you lead a small team or a large organization, it all matters. And even if you're not in a formal leadership role, you are still a leader. Thanks for tuning in today, friends. Life is short. Go make it count.